You're listening to Art Affairs, episode 22. Today I'll be talking to Tyler Thrasher. So my name's Michael Faith, and this is Art Affairs. If this is your first time listening, Art Affairs is meant to give you a look at and into the new contemporary art community, featuring conversations with artists, gallerists, curators, mad scientists, shining a spotlight on the human side of the wonderful work they do. You can dig through previous episodes, complete with show notes at artaffairspodcast.com, and you can check out new episodes on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, if you like what I'm doing here, be sure to subscribe. And you can always connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Art Affairs Podcast. On Twitter, it's at art underscore affairs. All right, so today's guest is artist and scientist Tyler Thrasher. I'm really stoked I was able to have Tyler on the show. He's someone that fascinates me so much just by how many completely different things he loves and is involved in. Everything from cave exploration to plant hybridization to composing electronic music, he's into so much. We talk about his many interests on the show, as well as diving into his crystallization process a bit, how he and his wife lost everything in a house fire back in 2016, his recent philanthropic projects, and a whole lot more. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tyler Thrasher. Tyler, thanks so much for doing the show, man. I'm, I'm really glad to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so I am absolutely fascinated by you in general and also just how many completely different things that you're involved in, um, which, you know, we'll get into all of that, but let's start by diving into your background a bit. Um, you grew up in Tulsa, where you, you live today. Um, what was childhood in Tulsa like? Was that sort of a typical urban, suburban upbringing? Uh I think for the most part it was. Uh, I grew up with three siblings and we grew up in a big old creepy house uh, <laughs> that was like relocated in a in a new neighborhood and my upbringing was pretty normal uh, except for some key details like my father used to uh, own nurseries and was a landscaper and I spent most of my childhood surrounded by plants and uh, in nature and even for a good chunk of my childhood I even lived in the back of a greenhouse so there are some elements to my childhood that may be a little different from your typical midwestern upbringing (laughs) So you lived in the back of a green. Interesting. So was yeah. this like a public greenhouse where people would come in and like buy plants and stuff? Or yeah. So uh, early on in my childhood, my dad he uh, ventured out into opening up his own nursery, and a part of this big property that had all these greenhouses, there was this tiny th- these tiny living quarters that were an office that were in the back of the greenhouse, and you had to walk underneath archways of bougainvilleas and geraniums and petunias <laughs> and then there's this little tiny uh, bedroom tucked in the back where i would stay uh, probably four days out of the week <laughs> interesting so were you interested in in the arts at all like did you have much exposure to uh you know the arts when you were coming up 
Uh, on and off. So my dad, early on, he would, uh, I would always, I have fond memories of my dad uh, drawing flowers. Uh, and he would sit out in the front yard and draw his flowers that he had planted. Or uh, we would do little art projects together. I don't know if you remember those velvety felt posters you could get and that you would color them in. Um, my dad and I used to do dozens of those. Um, but that was about my level of exposure to the arts. I didn't really fall in love with art until about uh, 15, 16 years old. Okay. What was it that sparked that interest? Was it just you, you kind of discovered things on your own? Well, so honestly, when I was in middle school, um, I got kicked out of my band class because I was too goofy and <laughs> I needed to take a creative elective. And so I, I thought, well, it's like music or art. That's my, those are my options. So I took art and then I was like, oh, wow, I actually enjoy this. And then in high school, I had a teacher who saw me doodling in the hallway and she stopped me and said, you are taking my class next semester. Nice. And she signed me up. Like I found out I was taking her class. And from there, it's just one deep, deep rabbit hole of love and fascination. That's amazing. It's amazing how you sort of just stumbled upon it like that. Yeah. Um, what about science? Like what, what was your relationship with science growing up? I didn't grow up in a scientific household. Uh, you know, we went, we went, we did things like go to the zoo and we hiked a lot. And I had always had this natural, this fascination for nature but again, it wasn't really until high school that I started even considering science something I wanted in my daily life. Um, and it's even weird because some of the things I loved in science I was already doing in my day-to-day -day life. I just didn't put it under this umbrella of this is science. And uh, chemistry came into that from taking chemistry courses in high school. And then my brain was, from that point on, was thinking, how can you combine chemistry and art and science and art? And I just... It was about 15 or 16 when most of the things I do now started to blossom. And then I started realizing who I was and what it is I wanted to do. Interesting. So, I mean, yeah, didn't you take like a, a, an AP chemistry course on a dare? Like somebody challenged you like, hey, <laughs> you, like, I, I read that somewhere. Like you, you kind of took it as, OK, I'll show you. Like, <laughs> I, yes, I here's the thing. I'm 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 admittedly a big goofball and. In high school, I had a lot of friends and teachers that told me you couldn't, you could never pass an advanced course because you're just too goofy. Like you don't, no one's going to take you seriously. And uh, my girlfriend at the time told me uh, that I was too dumb to take a advanced oh, chemistry wow. course. So How long did that relationship last? <laughs> two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I took the course and it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And then I realized I was in love and yeah. Most of the things I'm doing now probably were sparked from the fact that um, I'm a huge goofball and people didn't couldn't take me seriously. So <laughs> that's amazing. So when it came time to go to college, you you ended up going to Missouri State University. Um, what brought you to Missouri? So at the time when I was graduating high school, I I was very convinced I wanted to be a computer. I wanted to be an animator. And at the time in high school, I had taken years of Japanese language and culture courses, and I was damn near fluent in Japanese. And I thought, I'm going to go to Japan. I want to, I have all these animations I want to do. And I, you know, I was dreaming big. So the closest school that offered both Japanese and computer animation was Missouri State University. And I didn't want to travel far from home. And so I went to Missouri State with the intention of getting my degree in animation and Japanese and come to find out that uh, 
Uh, I hated both of those. I just, I, it was killing me. Uh, so, you know, I didn't realize that until I was about a year from graduating and I thought I got to finish this. So that's, that, that's it. Well, yeah. Wasn't, wasn't your, like your time in, in college pretty transformational? I mean, you, you said that a lot of the stuff blossomed in high school, but it seems like it blossomed even more and really kind of took off in the time that you spent in college. Um, you know, wasn't that the, when you first started exploring caves and really got interest in, interested in caving? Yeah. So the wonderful thing about Missouri is that you can throw a rock anywhere and you'll probably, it'll probably <laughs> land in a cave. And that's really not an exaggeration. Probably my sophomore year of college, I was sitting there and I saw this flyer for um, a caving trip. And I thought, well, who would go in a cave? And <laughs> I, I was just itching for anything different and there's not much more different than crawling through a dark muddy hole that most people don't explore um dodging bats and salamanders so i thought i'll try it i need something new and i again i stepped foot in this cave it was a mile and a half long cave system called skylight caves um and you go you enter the cave in this big 40 foot skylight and it, we, we explored this cave for hours and I had seen things that most people will never see. And just the intrigue, the mystery, the, the ancient nature of caves, it just like opened up a doorway I didn't know existed in me and fell in love. I spent every single weekend in college caving, looking for caves, digging out caves, um, researching caves. And somehow all of that was this big catalyst for where I am now. Yeah, because wasn't it your your interest in, in exploration into caving uh, what got you fascinated in, in mineralogy? Yes. So, you know, when you're underground for hours crawling through tight holes and you and then you look up and you see this little nook where you can see gypsum crystals growing or you can see million-year-old stalactites or stalagmites, you, I, you just almost can't help but be inspired by that. And before I knew it, I was drawing and illustrating crystals. I, I didn't do any of this stuff. This just kind of started all happening at once. Uh, and I found myself fascinated by molecular geometry and, and natural geometry. And I, I just sat there thinking, how can I incorporate more of my constant experiences in caves? How can I work that more into my art? Because at this point, I was spending more time in, in, in caves than I was working on my schoolwork. <laughs> so I was like, obviously, this is the route my brain needs to go. Right, right. Are you still able to go caving today? Like, is it something you're still able to do? Well, so not really uh, for two reasons. Caving is one of the worst things you can do during a pandemic. Uh, there's nothing <laughs> right. There's nothing more risky than getting a group of people together in a tight hole where we're all breathing <laughs> and sweating in the same closed corridors. So I don't my typical caving group. Uh, we were my wife and I are quarantining. So it's like that's not possible in Oklahoma. It's pretty low on the uh, cave numbers. There's not many caves and. All the bats are endangered, so a lot of the caves are gated off and closed off, making it virtually impossible to get in them. So there's a couple of obstacles in between me and getting back in a cave. It's admittedly been a long time. Sure, yeah. So what happened to computer animation? Like, how did that... I mean, obviously, you're not a computer animator today, so <laughs> how, did, how did that turn out? I mean, because you said you, you sort of discovered this in your last year of college, that maybe this wasn't for you. Yeah, Um well, so I, I had to be really honest with myself. I had spent four years on that degree. I was on the last couple of months, and I didn't really know where I wanted to land with it. 
the longer I had spent, the more time I had spent on that degree, the quicker I realized I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do with animation. You know, I have all these big stories I've, I want I want to dedicate my life working on, and you don't get to do that in computer animation. Most likely, you'll end up as one of the small people working on someone else's story or working on Dora the Explorer or some something that has no creative value whatsoever. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow, come on, Dora. But that's just the realities. It's like I've learned I might end up at some tiny animation studio doing Juju Pets, which was the reality for a lot of my peers. And it just depressed me to think that all these stories I wanted to dedicate my life to would just get like just whisked away and probably never ever finish. So it was about my last two months. They brought in a professional animator to talk to us. And I was like, Oh, this is great. I can now ask every question that I need answers to all my anxieties. I can be honest with because I've dedicated four years to this time to find out what I'm about to walk into. And the answers I got from this guy they brought in were so depressing I remember asking, he said that he was working on Juju Pets, Dora the Explorer. He was hired to be a part of one of the worst rated games on Nintendo DS. It was like some bowling game. He's like, yeah, that's the worst game ever made for Nintendo. And my name's on that. And I asked him, I said, okay, well, when's the last time you got to work on your own art or work on your own story or project? And he said, it's been about 10 years. And I said, oh, Oh, God. And he said, yeah, I work like 60 hours a week. And our studio gives us what's called ice time, where we get to cool down between Nintendo project or Nickelodeon projects. And I said, what's ice time? And he said, uh, it's what our directors and managers give us. And they let us work on our own projects for about two weeks. And then we can pitch them to them. And I said, okay, well, that's two weeks out of 10 years is not that great. And I said, do your projects and pitches ever go anywhere? And he's like, no, they just do it to entertain us and make us feel like we have time to work (laughs) on our own stuff. And the second he said that, it was that moment. I looked at the last four years and I said, screw this. I will take what I can from this experience and the things that it's inspired in me, but I know for a fact that I will wither away if I have to sit in an animation studio animating dancing hamsters for 40 years um, <laughs> yeah that was a ringing endorsement <laughs> it's just the realities and the, and the thing is is when you animation is one of the most uh intensive art practices out there and no one's ever brutally honest you just see the beautiful like finished product on cartoon network or adult swim and you don't realize it took dozens and dozens and dozens of people to do that and they may not have wanted to do that exact project. And so I needed that honesty with my degree. You know, you got to hold it to a very high level because you might be doing it for the rest of your life. And it just didn't meet my requirements. So, um, you know. For sure. <laughs> is, is it frustrating that, that it, it was a discovery that you made so late in your college? Like it was too late at that point to change anything. Like you were in the last year, right? yeah i was like i'm just gonna finish this no uh it wasn't frustrating because i had spent so much of my college i was an ra a resident assistant in college so i spent like two years of my life helping new college kids with what it was they wanted to do and one of the things i had told so many of these students was look you have to be willing to admit that you may not want to do the thing you thought you wanted to do before you got into college. Because things change. People change their degrees 
all the time and you don't know you don't want to do it till you start doing it. So I already had preached this to so many people that when it finally happened to me, I looked at it and said, Tyler, you've learned so much from this. You know, I've learned how to use a lot of programs for my animation degree. And there are a lot of very useful tools and resources that I made well worth my money. It's just I had to realize I don't want to sit in a studio doing those things. So it wasn't frustrating or disappointing. It was more eye-opening, and I just hopped on that as quick as I could. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, no doubt. Because, I mean, it, you know, that experience alone, I think, was valuable. Just it, knowing what you don't want to do, you know? Yes, yes, <laughs> um, yes. So, so in addition to that sort of self-discovery, wasn't it also your last year in college when you first really began experimenting with crystallization? Yeah, so I had this chemistry background and chemistry fascination. And right almost the week that that guy had, that the animator had told me his experiences, I was like, I gotta do something else. <laughs> and I had been drawing crystals and minerals for months before that. And even so much so that my teachers and instructors were like, you should animate some of this because you're kind of obsessed. And I ended up drawing and illustrating crystals on insects just out of this weird combination and the chemistry part of my brain was thinking is this actually possible like this might be an object you can actually make as a real crystal covered insect so right after that animator came and spoke to us i went home and i googled crystallized insect crystal covered insect there was nothing i couldn't find anything and my brain you know of course starts lighting up and saying look if you can't find it on google that means you should probably make it. And that's exactly what I set out to do. Uh, It was about a month before graduating that I started crystallizing insects just out of boredom. And I needed, again, something new. And I crystallized my first cicada shell. It was this little tiny cicada shell covered in blue copper sulfate crystals. I fell in love. My, I was, it was, I was so inspired. I shared it online and a lot of people are like, ooh, this is weird or why would you do this? And then there's a small group of people who saw this and said, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I had to agree with them. It was the coolest thing I'd ever made. And from there, it just was natural. It became my full-time job. About three days before graduating, I had realized maybe this could be my full-time job. And that has proven true for the last five years. Yeah, that was perfect timing. What, what what was the, I guess, impetus for using insects? Like, how did that, I guess, leap of thinking take place? From, hey, I'm interested in crystals to, hey, I'm going to apply this to insects or dead, you know, rem- remnants of living things, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you, if you spend enough time in nature where you can shut your brain up for just an hour, you will notice so many things. And when I hike, that's what I try to do. And my brain is just looking at all these naturally occurring things in ways that I normally don't get when I'm living in a dorm. And so I would hike looking for caves, but then I would see insects or I'd see these little bits of nature that I, my, I wanted to illustrate. So about the same time I was drawing crystals and illustrating crystals, I was also drawing and illustrating insects. And I just found myself almost grasping at anything natural. It was like this beautiful escape for me was to get out of the world and get back into nature. And so when I started drawing crystals and insects separately, I just, it's one of those weird things when you're falling asleep and you're trying to think, what is the next thing I could make? And you already have these two different worlds that you're doing separately. And it was just a quick step for my brain to go, why don't you combine the two on paper? And that was really it. As I was already illustrating both crystals and insects 
separately. And then I was thinking, what could I make next? And my brain kind of just threw that one at me. And it was just kind of a naturally occurring organic marriage, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, Beyond the chemistry that you'd taken in high school, had you been doing much with chemistry since then? So not uh, not like academically. I uh, studied chemistry on my own uh, in my spare time, and I would read chemistry journals and research articles and all this on my own. I've debated on going back to school for chemistry or while I was in college I was going to do it, but it just didn't seem feasible because I wasn't going to get a traditional career in chemistry. You know, I wasn't going to be a chemical engineer or work in the petroleum industry. And so for me, I thought, why spend my money on a chemistry degree when I could just get as many textbooks as I can and just pour through specifically what fascinates me. Uh, And so anything past high school for the last, oh God, like 10 years, this just self-taught and just me pouring through my own texts and journals and picking out what fascinates me. Well, yeah, I mean, with chemistry in particular, there's a lot that, I mean, there's there's a lot of equipment that you have to kind of learn. There's uh, processes for safety that you have to be mindful of. Like, did you, all of that was sort of self-taught and just individual research that you did? Yeah, and I mean, of course, when we're talking in the world of chemistry, there's so many things you can do. There's so many uh, applications and different schools of chemistry and different, um, I, mean, I mean, we're talking about looking at the natural world in terms of molecules and atoms and thinking how can we tweak this and so there's no sh- there's no end to what you can do with chemistry and so i picked the things that i wanted to do and then yeah i researched the safety you know how dangerous are some of these chemicals what do i need to do the few things that i'm fascinated with uh, safely and uh, appropriately and so yeah a lot of that is self-taught and me realizing while you're self-taught, there may be some things you shouldn't mess with. You know, I have a list of experiments I would love to do, but not in my current setup. And I should probably consult some, uh, a few like living experts before I (laughs) attempt some of these experiments that are on my list. Wow. That sounds exciting. Uh (laughs) Are some of the chemicals that you, that you use in your process, are they toxic at all? So most of them are. And, and that, of course, comes with, you know, making sure you use proper ventilation and, and you're wearing appropriate clothing and you're not, you know, inhaling or drinking any of the chemicals. But for my crystals, I use uh, salt-based compounds, so things like uh, chromium potassium sulfate, iron sulfate, um, different, different sulfates. And those can be fairly toxic, but um, that's when you grow them into crystals and coat them. And then once they're in crystal form and they're solid, uh, they're not as toxic and, and you're not supposed to really handle them too much, which works great for art because you're not really supposed to handle. There's a lot of art you're not supposed to just handle willy nilly. <laughs> so um, it works out. <laughs> right, right. No, no doubt. Um, what goes into like the colorization? Because I noticed that some of them are colored differently. Is Is there a I guess a technique for that with regard to what chemicals you use, or is it some kind of a dye? Like how, do, how does that process work? So the, the colors are dependent. I don't use any dyes. The colors are dependent on the, the molecular arrangement of the crystals. So that, that molecular geometry I'd mentioned before, that is the base structure of a crystal. It's how those molecules will line up. It's like the perfect arrangement 
Um, it's essentially arranging the molecules in the most boring way possible is what yields a crystal and or the most organized way. And uh, that how those interact with light determines the color, different chemicals and different molecules and atoms have different oxidation states. And those those determine how different colors like copper being, you know, green or blue or red and and like things like vanadium, which has, you know, up to five different colors that can be exhibited. That all depends on the arrangement um, of electrons and the arrangement of those molecules. So, so was it a lot of just experimentation of figuring out which ones would yield certain colors, uh, you know, as far as your own practice goes? Yeah, well, so... A lot of the colors, you know, a lot of that is once you're deep into chemistry, um, the color part of that almost is like secondary. And so you just know all these beautiful colors that these chemicals can make. And sometimes that doesn't even necessarily matter in the school of chemistry necessarily, unless you're testing for that sort of thing. But you just kind of know that like, you know, all the blues are in, and reds and greens, you can get copper and then the purples and reds come with chromium. And you just sort of learn what atoms produce what colors. And, and that's where the art comes in is taking chemistry and taking away the day to day scientific application and thinking, how can I use a periodic table as sort of my palette? Um, and it's just kind of secondary knowledge, what chemicals make what colors and which ones will kill you and which ones are okay <laughs> to handle and which ones you feel good about putting out in the public and stuff like that. <laughs> How do you go about choosing like what types of animals or insects that you're going to use in one of your pieces? So my baseline is the cicada. That's like the thing that every like my followers have stapled onto me is Crystallized cicada is the Tyler Thrasher staple. Um, it's just funny what, how that happens. And so mostly cicadas or insects that have a hard exoskeleton because we're putting these insects, you know, in they're dead. We're putting the dead insects in boiling hot uh, vats of chemicals. And so they have to withstand that heat and the temperature. And so things like butterflies and moths just fall apart. But anything that has a hard, sturdy exoskeleton can withstand the heat and the water and be sturdy enough to support crystal nucleation and crystal growth. So my options are limited. Uh, I usually pick what is the most durable and what can withstand the process. Okay, and how do you source your specimens? Is, I mean, do you, do you capture all of these or find <laughs> these on hikes or like how, do, how does that work? Honestly, all over. Uh, during summer in Oklahoma, when the cicadas come out, uh, my wife and I will go climb trees and collect dead ones. Like we have Walmart bags and we'll just <laughs> like fill the bags with, uh, like exoskeletons and dead shell and shells and dead insects. Uh, at this point in my career too, what's funny is people find dead bugs all the time and send them to me. So I have a regular, a regular just, income of dead bugs that come in through the mail. And then I, I work with entomologists that uh, either studied, like they preserve dead bugs and study them, and then they sell the, the remains to me. Or I work with people who um, find them and spread them like taxidermists. Uh, so I, I have like eight different avenues at which I source my pieces. It just depends on what I want to do and what's available. Very cool. Is the process... Um, that you use something that you can do a lot of at once or is it is it a one at a time sort of thing 
So, uh, for instance, I do a lot of pieces like in big batches. And so, you know, depending on the vat, I could crystallize 15 to 20 cicadas at once um, if I have a vat large enough. And, you know, it usually takes about a month and a half or so to get them all fully finished. But yeah, you, you can do them in, in batches, but you also have to be mindful when they crystallize. You got to be mindful of the, the risk of two pieces crystallizing together. And so you don't want to put things together that, say, a cicada could accidentally crystallize to a scorpion. And then whenever you separate the two, the scorpion tail breaks off and it's actually now attached to the cicada. <laughs> and so I have to do some weird hoops. I got to jump through some weird hoops whenever I'm trying to batch crystallize stuff and make sure everything's combat compatible um, once it's all in the same bat. <laughs> Very cool. Well, it's so impressive just how, I mean, how you found such, you know, early success. It was in your last year of college and you kind of came across this opportunity. Um, what, you know, and then that opportunity provides you the freedom then to create, you know, full-time right out of college. What do you think you would have done had things been more gradual and had it developed more gradually like a lot of artists? I think if this had taken a slower route, I probably, I, I probably would have ended up here anyways, or at some, in some degree, you know, I, I always wanted to make my own work and tell my own stories. And so I, I probably would have found this end result no matter what, if it had been more gradual, I think at most it would have been less chaotic. You know, there's, there's something about an idea taking off quicker than you can keep up with. And, and then you just trying to scramble to figure it out. You know, I mean, even now there's every month I'm surprised by what's happening. And it's a, honestly, it's a real challenge to keep up with the, the rate at which you could make work, the rate at which you could put work out into the world. And the demand for me has been so amazingly insane that I'm like still trying to figure out how do I manage this? So that no one in school is going to teach you. What do you do when your work goes viral? When you're just one person and then the internet does what the internet does. First off, it's like living in a crazy simulation. And <laughs> second, you just have to figure it out all out on your own. Like there's no blog. There's no teacher out there that's going to be honest with you on what to do when your work is now being requested all around the world and you're just one person who was at Missouri State University trying to get an <laughs> animation degree. <laughs> well, yeah, there's there's no there's definitely no textbook for that. Um, and, and it's sort of something you have to feel out on your own. Once you graduated, you did end up moving back to Tulsa where you grew up. Was that just to stay connected to like your family and your roots? Yeah, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to end up back in Tulsa. And I had had some issues with the Midwest. I mean, being a black man in the Midwest, trying to learn, trying to be a scientist and artist, I was met with a lot of opposition and it was really hard to get people to take me seriously. And I thought, why do I want to go back to Tulsa? Honestly, my work would, would have thrived on its own if I moved somewhere like Portland or somewhere, you know, on the West Coast where I had been urged to move and my family back in Tulsa, you know, I, I'm really close to my family. So that was important. And my wife, who's also a Tulsa native, she um, was telling me, she's like, Tyler, Tulsa got really cool in the last four years while you're at college. Just come back and try it out. And I, I reluctantly said yes, 
came back to Tulsa and turns out Tulsa got really freaking cool in the last <laughs> four years. And what also helps is the cost of living here is really cheap and um, very manageable. So for an artist who didn't really know what they were going to do or what direction I was going to be pulled, it was just kind of a safe, a really safe uh, option. And then it turns out I, I fell in love with Tulsa. Like as an adult, I was like, this is a really cool city. Like I, I could spend the rest of my life just staying right here in Tulsa. Very cool. That's amazing. Um, so in, in 2016, like a year after you graduated, um, you guys had moved back to Tulsa. You were now experiencing some, you know, well-deserved early success in your career. And then sadly, were devastated by a fire that destroyed you and your wife's home. Um, which from what I understand, you pretty much like lost everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can only imagine what that must've been like. Uh, how, I guess let's start, I guess let's start with the fire. Like what caused the fire? Like how did that even happen? So we're still not entirely sure, uh, because I'm going to just post a quick warning to anyone who's listening to this that is thinking about buying a house, get a good electrical inspection. Make sure you pick a good inspector, especially if it's an old house. Uh, we, I don't know that we just got the best inspector and they missed it, but the, it, our house was from the night from 1934. And you, do you know what they used to insulate houses with back then? <laughs> no. <laughs> take a guess. Just take any wild. <laughs> um, I don't know. Some form of cotton. <laughs> newspaper. Newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> newspaper. Newspaper. Wow. And just and then they would just stuff wiring into the newspaper, and newspapers incredibly flammable. So uh, our house was insulated, literally insulated with paper and and newspaper, um, and we didn't know that. And so I guess what just ended up happening was one winter. That winter, uh, there was just a random spark, which can happen. And unfortunately, the most flammable, probably one of the most flammable objects is right there. <laughs> And our house burned down in about 10 minutes. It didn't even take that long. Wow. Yeah, we had stepped out of the house. It was about a 20-minute window we were gone in which our house had just... like it, We think it started engulfing in flames about five minutes after we left. Um, and Wow. Well, I mean, your, your walls were made of kindling. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And we came back and it was, you know, we didn't really learn about what it was until our neighbor who uh, I've joked about are my old neighbor in my podcast. Um, she's just this really mean person who I think is also mildly racist. She, our house fire melted some of her siding and she tried to sue us for that. What? Um, yeah, we, wow. came, we came home the, or the day after the fire, we came with the insurance person and be like, well, oh my God, what do we do? And our neighbor, who this was her first time seeing us since the fire, just stares at us and scowls. Didn't ask if we were okay or anything. And I was like, what's her problem? And I look up and her siding had melted. So her insurance company calls us to ask us if we started the fire and to get info. And we're like, no, we didn't start the fire. And they go, okay. <laughs> you just lost your entire house. <laughs> yeah. And we, and we found out it was electrical because they had contacted the fire chief who told them. And we had, we just didn't know until she was trying to sue us to fix her siding and i was like this world is wow. so effed up <laughs> that's a special kind of evil right there that's like, yes that's, yes <laughs> so how did you guys go about like start the process of starting over like getting getting back on your feet oh god <laughs> man it's not it's not easy we it was honestly really numbing you know i i had lost 
everything, including a lot of my artwork, you know, a lot of my artwork. And I had been working on an art book about two years prior to the fire. I'd lost everything, all the hard drives that my work was on. Um, you know, I was in the process that night. I was in the process of uploading my artwork to a cloud service. And of course, the night I decide to put it somewhere safer, literally had a house. I started the upload and then me and my wife were like, let's go get some drinks. Oh, and that's man. when it happened. And it's like, sometimes it's just, you got to look at it and say, either karma's getting me back or the, or the universe is just this chaotic entity. And all we can do as humans is wade through it with grace. And that's what we did. We were numb. We were, you know, heartbroken. And if anything, we just, my wife and I are really resilient. And we looked at this as a moment to learn, take notes and understand that so many people have house fires and we are just very lucky. That could have happened while we were asleep. That could have, you know, we had guests over that night and the room where the fire started, they were sleeping. Um, and so we looked at it and said, if the house was going to go down from just being old and insulated with newspaper, it happened at the best possible moment. We didn't have our baby and we were gone when it happened and we didn't, it didn't start while we were in the house. And so the, we just looked at it as we don't have any options except to be grateful we weren't home. Like that's all, that's literally all we have left. And so that's what you do. You just pick up what you have and, and say humans are resilient. And then, you know, our friends started a GoFundMe for us and a thousand strangers backed it. And we were able to buy some clothes again and buy a computer so I could get back to work. And people just come by and they make that human net and they catch you. And, and you just got to make sure, put it in the front of your mind that you have to return that favor when you're called to do it. Well, I mean, that's a, that's an admirable amount of like positivity. I love that, like that perspective, because like a lot of people that that's that's defeating. Like that's something that mm -hmm. would cripple somebody. But you kind of took it and looked at it and said, well, it could have been worse. I'm going to keep going. Um, and, and wasn't that that book that you were working on, Wisdom of the Furnace, didn't that uh, from what I've read, that almost like fueled you to work even harder on that. Like, we're like oh, almost yeah. like you, you, you can't hold me down sort of thing. A thousand percent. And I think I'm 27 and I'm learning that the narrative of my life is that I'm just going to have a lot of punches swung at me and I just, I got to take them and, and handle it the best I can. And that was one of them. And I, and I have this mentality where when I'm challenged, I show up to the challenge and I do my best. And after I'd lost that book and everything for it, I was lying in bed on an air mattress at Molly's parents' house and we were lying there. And of course, we're going through everything we lost that next morning. Like when you come home to your house, a black charred mess, you don't really feel much. It's a lot at once. And it's really odd how the human brain can just shut down in the face of tragedy. You just kind of go into survival mode. And thank God we have this in our brain chemistry to just shut down and focus on what's important. But next morning from the come down of adrenaline, Molly and I are talking about all the things we lost. And I said out loud, I said, oh, I lost everything for the wisdom of the furnace because I already had this name picked out. And something about saying that out loud, every, it was like one of those moments in the universe, in the universe where everything, all the dots line up. And I looked at Molly and I was like, oh my God. And I'm not woo woo at all, but every now and then 
reality throws me a curveball and I'm like, what are you playing at here? <laughs> and I said it out loud and I thought, I got to get back in there. And my wife was like, what? And I was like, I got to get back in there. I lost everything. And I was like, I can't make a book that's based on the alchemical principle of pulling out wonder, excitement, and, and human resilience out of a furnace like alchemists used to do back in the day. I can't make a, a book that's an homage to esoteric alchemy called The Wisdom of the Furnace without having experienced what that furnace is. And so quite literally, I reached into this furnace that was our house and pulled out the book a second time. I said, this is the finished product. Oh, wow. um, and it was just it was weird how the universe just gives you a little nod. You know, she's saying, yeah, I'm going to burn your house down, but you're going <laughs> to you're going to come out way better for this. And in a lot of ways, we're very thankful it happened the way it did because it sparked my creativity. It pushed me creatively and it tested my resilience. It made me realize that I'm full of some really tough stuff and come to find out uh, a couple of weeks after our house fire, uh, Molly and I, we found out uh, she was pregnant and then we had a miscarriage. And so oh. th- it was like being set up for some really hard things to come. And we, Molly and I said, we survived the house fire. We can make it through this miscarriage. We can make it through anything. And that's been our mindset every single day is if we could make it through that night with each other, then bring it on. We will, we will get through this whole thing together. So that's, that's amazing. Um, do, do you like, do you, do you feel that the book turned out better than what you had originally had prepared up until that point? Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny how, it's funny how art works, right? I worked my ass off the first time, lost it. Second time, I knew what I wanted to do different, so I did it. And it's so funny. I finished this book, and I'm like, I'm seeing stuff in the second run, the second you know attempt at the book, where I'm like, now that I'm about three years past that, you grow. And I'm thinking, if I were to do that book again, I would do these things different. <laughs> um, but I am very happy and in love with the book. And I think, honestly, in a weird way, I think The House Fire yielded a much better book. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. It also gave you like what seems like a whole new perspective to carry you the rest of your life, you know. Um, So I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about some of your other interests and creative pursuits, which are many. Um, And I guess uh, let's start with your your drawing, because I I see you especially recently posted um, a number of botanical drawings, uh, things that you've drawn recently. Um, Is that something you still and I know that was that was a big part of like, you know, your life along the way. Uh, Is that something you still enjoy doing? Yeah. And you know, having a toddler, you, you don't get to do as much as you would like. And <laughs> so drawing is kind of falling on the back burner, but I love drawing. I, I have since high school and it, it brings me back to my roots because a lot of people see my drawings and they go, Oh my God, you draw too. When they only know me for the crystallized, you know, dead stuff. And I'm thinking, this is so funny because I was drawing first. Yeah. And it's just funny how people see one little window of your life. And then you introduce another one and they're like, oh, my God, this is new. And it's like, no, I'm actually I've been doing this for years. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy drawing a lot. I enjoy capturing my those natural observations. And uh, and it, yeah, it's one of my many escapes, honestly. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> is it something you'd like to have become a bigger part of what you do? Would you like to have do more of it? To a degree. Uh, I want to incorporate it more on like so uh, some of my followers know this but i'm a huge dungeons and dragons nerd and i love fantasy stuff and so 
I'm finding ways to incorporate my drawings, which are all, which are mostly based in nature. You know, things I draw that I find or things in my greenhouse. And I'm working on ways to make that more creative. And so, like, I'm working on a, a fictional botanical plant guide where I draw and make up these and illustrate these fictional plants that are sort of based in reality, but have a little bit of fun to them. And so, yes, I do want to incorporate more of that, which is, you know, again, trying to figure out how do I navigate the success that has been my business and my art with setting aside time to draw, you know? (laughs) Very cool. Yeah, no, no doubt. And, and so, you know, you mentioned your greenhouse and anybody that's followed you for even a short period of time would know that botany is another huge passion of yours. Um, has that interest, uh, was that all because of what you experienced growing up with your father and the, and the, the time that he spent with his greenhouses and, uh, you know, his nursery? A thousand percent. Um, I have most of my fond memories are revolving around, like revolve around plants. My dad used to have this, this big, beautiful garden around our house and I remember my dad used to have home and garden tours. And so we'd wake up one morning and there'd be a line, a line of people out the backyard and around the block. And my dad would have us make cookies and lemonade for people to hand to them while they would go through the garden. And I remember looking out my little bedroom window on the second story and just watching. People would never see me. They couldn't see me because I was, you know, I was a little guy and I would just watch people go through my dad's garden and, and applaud him and his hard work. And, and I remember being really proud of my dad and I would go to school like seven years old and be like, my dad had a home and garden tour and there were a lot of people. <laughs> and I was so proud of my dad. And I just remember most of my fond memories revolve around plants, my dad's garden, hiding in his greenhouses and spying on the employees while they would water, you know, they would go and water the uh, bougainvilleas and stuff like that. And I would hide behind a 50 gallon terracotta pot, just watching the customers and stuff navigate. Um, and yeah, I had, a, I've always had a lot of fun around plants. It's the, two, you know, the idea of like a fun escape and plants have been married um, in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that I'm absolutely fascinated by is your plant hybrid creations. Oh, I mean, you're like this, like <laughs> literal, like plant Frankenstein. It's incredible. Yes. Um, you know, when when did you start experimenting with hybridization? Probably about two years after my collection started. I I remember when you get into the world of plants, it goes so deep. I mean, you can learn about conservation. You can learn about all the you know illegal poaching that happens. You can learn about people who hybridize plants or people that specialize in naturally occurring species. And there's so many different factions in the plant world. I've met people who hate hybrids. I met people who think hybrids are this muddied, muddled version of what the plant should be. I've met people who are like kind of borderline racist and purist about plants. (laughs) Like in a weird way. I've met people who, who, Say out loud, I prefer pure species. And it's just, there's purists. And I'm like, I'm like, just keep that mentality in the realm of plants. Do not ever take what you said and apply it to anything else. (laughs) I like to tinker with nature. I love tinkering with nature. And when you grow hundreds of plants and you have different plants that are compatible, um, 
that can be hybridized together, you start doing research. And I started talking to people who specialize in hybridizing plants, people who have plants named after them, people that have made new intergeneric species or intergeneric hybrids. And I thought, I want to make my own plant. So all you do, all you do, and this is just the history of hybridizing. You take two plants you want to cross-pollinate. You take a little paintbrush, a beard hair, or whatever you need to use to get pollen from A to B. And you just go back and forth. And then you just sit back and hope that the cross uh, took. And it takes months before you have seed. And then you sow the seed. And then it takes three years before you can say definitively if it's a true hybrid. Wow, um, that's like that's a long game. <laughs> it is, and it's to me, it's art. I've talked to botanists and growers that look at their hybrids as an art form. They intentionally pick the two they want to cross, and they have different traits that they hope will come through in the offspring. Uh, and sometimes they're completely surprised, which to me is the best part. I've made hybrids where I thought one thing would happen, and instead the plant came up purple, and I was like, "That's not supposed to come up purple." <laughs> And then, but there's always a reason. There's a reason the plant came up purple. There's a reason the leaves came up curly as opposed to flat and straight. And to me, those hybrids open up more questions and they keep that corridor of curiosity just perpetually going. So it was only natural that I was going to start trying to make my own plants, I think. <laughs> Do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite hybrid that you've created over the years? So I'm honestly very early in my career as a hybridizer. Uh, I, I just now hit my three-year mark where I have plants that are three years old that I can definitively say, oh, this is a hybrid. This looks very different from the parents. And I would say probably one of my favorite hybrids I've made is a plant that I'm calling the Drosanthemum lemon curl. And what it was is I took two different Drosanthemum species, and they have these sparkly bladders on the outsides of the leaves that hold water. So they look like they're crystallized, which is another fascination for me is when light hits the leaves, it's refracted through these water bubbles on the outside oh, wow. of the leaves and it looks like it's bedazzled. And so I took <laughs> two different species and I thought my goal was to make a plant that had big, round, juicy, circular leaves to look like the plant was covered in crystallized spheres. That's what theoretically I thought should happen. What ended up happening is some freak mutation came through and all the plants came up variegated where parts of the leaves didn't have chlorophyll. So the, the leaves were green and white as opposed to all green. Well, the white sections grow slower, so it constricts the green sections and it caused the leaves to co sort of contort and twist inward and curl oh, because only half of the leaf was growing. And so I ended up with was a sparkly plant where its leaves would twist and curl around itself. Did not expect this at all. And it was one of the, it was a very fascinating discovery when those seedlings got large enough. And I was like, okay, those leaves are doing some weird shit. And I look at it and I'm like, <laughs> two weeks later, I'm like, no, those leaves are really doing some weird things. And then give it two years and all of a sudden you have a completely unique plant. But I think the lemon curl is my favorite hybrid so far. That's incredible. Um, you know, sort of adjacent to your interest in botany is, is, is your own podcast. You do have your own podcast called Greenhouse Rants, which I believe you do out of your actual greenhouse. <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> how did you first get started with podcasting? Uh, that was sort of a beautiful accident. I am prone to ranting and complaining, and I love it. Um, and I would 
I used to go in the greenhouse to rant because Molly, <laughs> Molly would be putting the baby to sleep. And if I have a, a crazy idea, whether it's based on anger or fascination, I had to go to the greenhouse to like get on my phone and like, cause I don't express things quietly. And so I'm like <laughs> in the greenhouse pacing back and forth, shouting my ideas into the phone. And people started calling it greenhouse rants. Like people would be like, Tyler's in the greenhouse. And people would be like, oh, here comes another greenhouse rants. And one night I was falling asleep and someone messaged me and said, have you ever thought about just making a podcast about all your rants in the greenhouse? And I was like, no. And so I just put a microphone out there and I thought, yeah, this isn't a soundproof environment, but it had a bit of charm to it to be able to record. And then you would hear like the crickets chirping or it would start raining and you hear the rain pelting on the glass. Or sometimes you would hear some someone who's like, unfortunately strung out across the street shouting at a dog or at one point our neighbor had a rooster that would go off anytime I would start ranting and so it just kind of became this experience of recording my opinions in a world that won't stop for me (laughs) so I just have to (laughs) kind of work with it. That's incredible. Um, and you also have another podcast, uh, which, you know, you mentioned your fascination and love for Dungeons and, Dra- Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, this one's called The Lost Magic. Um, you know, is that one more focused? Is that, does that have more of a narrative focus to it? Are you, are you telling stories with that one? Or what is, what's the story there? Yeah. So it's half and half. The beauty about Dungeons and Dragons is, you know, you have the dungeon master and you have the players. Dungeon Master tells the stories and the players come in and they just mess your world up and they <laughs> they make their own paths in your world. I love the interaction between the Dungeon Master and the players. And so the Lost Magic podcast is I, I have always wanted to tell short stories through Dungeons and Dragons, like using the world of D&D to tell short stories. And so it's half storytelling, but also I'm just recording us playing a game where I wrote the rules of the game. And some of the best moments in that podcast are times where players take my story and then they just twist it in a way that challenges me to come back around and meet it. But also it has to be contained because it's a story. It can't go too off the walls. you got to keep it contained. And so The Lost Magic is going to be a series of short stories that are seemingly unrelated. So as you listen to all these different short stories, there's no evident connection, but the main goal is to reveal a big connection that opens up a whole new world within the stories. And that's just something we've slowly been working on. Of course, you can't play D&D during a pandemic, so that's kind of been put on hold, but I have three of the stories up so far. Very cool. Awesome. So podcasting isn't the only audio related interest you have, though. You've also, you know, from what I understand, write and compose electronic music like ever since college. Yeah. Um, how did you first get into that? Like, what, how, did, how did you first take an interest in making music, I guess? Uh, that again, that was also another accident. I, uh, I wasn't really familiar with electronic music until high school. And I remember <laughs> I remember I had a little iPod Nano and I used LimeWire like everyone else did, uh, where I would illegally download music like everyone else. And <laughs> um, I remember finding this track by Tiesto, DJ Tiesto. He makes electronic music. And I was like, I was like, that's a crazy ass name. So I downloaded it and I listened to it. And something about the constant rhythm and the constant, you know, four to the floor kick drum and like the something about that really resonated with my brain and the pace at which my brain moves. 
and I became obsessed. I would listen to electronic music exclusively. Uh, and at some point in high school, I thought, I want to make some. And then in college, I got a computer. I got a sponsorship from uh, ImageLine that, uh, that uh, does FL Studio. And I just started bebopping around and hitting keys and seeing what happened. And <laughs> next thing I know, I was learning how to make electronic music. That's amazing. What kind of equipment do you use? So it's really simple. Um, I, <laughs> I just have... Two really nice speakers, and I have a little, uh, you can see it behind me, this little like three octave keyboard, this little synthesizer, uh, and I just use a digital audio workstation where you can compose your music, you can edit and create synths and different sounds and different sound waves, and you just use all that information to hopefully make music. Uh, and I do it all on my computer with just that little keyboard um, and a program that is miraculous is making music something you you just do solely for fun or would you like to do more with it so far it's solely for fun and i don't have any intense musical training everything i know i just learn on my own and i i again i read lots of stuff on music and and, and musical theory and for me i just i don't want to make it too serious but I do envision a point in my life where I do get a better grasp on my business and things get a little more under control where maybe I could dedicate a year, hopefully sometime soon, to just sitting down and just making the kind of music I want and and sort of mastering my handle on electronic music. But for now, it's just sort of like a, I'm done crystallizing stuff. I would like <laughs> to hit some keys for like two hours kind of thing. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, you're you're interested in so many different things. How do you make time for all these different things that you love? I, it was much easier before I had a baby. <laughs> um, <laughs> for me, I find ways to combine them to save myself time because it is very time consuming to have my brain. And I, I've said this before, but my brain sometimes feels like it's being pulled one way and I have to listen or the thing I'm trying to do instead will be half-assed and so it's man it's really navigating what my brain's trying to do so i find ways to combine them so like my love for plants well yes i would love to spend hours in my greenhouse but i have drawings to do i have illustrations that i need to tweak and i need to stay on top of my craft how do i combine two of those i bring my paper out to the greenhouse and so yeah i can spend hours in the greenhouse while drawing the things in my greenhouse or you know I would like to tell these stories. Well, I also want to go out and hike. How do I do that? Oh, I'll go hike. And then most of my stories are based in nature. So I find ways to combine all my interests to A, save time and to hopefully build a system that inspires itself. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the Do Good Gang. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I absolutely love, I, I love what you created there, uh, you know, following, you know, what happened with, with George Floyd's murder. And there, there's just a lot of incredible work being done. And, and I, you know, all the activism around Black Lives Matter and defunding the police. And I love how you sort of took that opportunity, looked at what, you know, your sphere of influence and the way that you work and found a way to do something good um, and, and with the, the raise some heck fundraiser turned it into this incredibly inspiring thing. Um, how did that all get started? Like where did the idea come from? Well, I, I think I'm stuck with a lot of humans that are very frustrated and we want to do things right. I think, I believe most humans want to do good and I believe we are looking for creative ways to do good. And that's been my goal. Even in college, you know, you could ask my wife hours on the phone, long distance. I would say, 
I just want to be a successful artist. And she would be like, why is that so important to you? I'm like, because I might have the capacity to do a lot of good. That's not happening. Um, you know, I, I, at the time I wasn't seeing a lot of artists I looked up to giving a damn, you know, I was following big artists and producers and, and creatives that I was looking at them having millions of followers and, and doing all these big tours. And I'm like, that's good for them. But what if they did something more? And that was always for me, this weird void where these big artists weren't doing much, not all of them, but some of them. And so that was always on the top of my head was if my work ever takes off dreaming big here, I want to leave some space to give back. And with the BLM protests and, and on top of a million frustrations from this year, that was it. I found this opening and I had three people DM me and say, what if you sold the raise some hex shirts to raise a little bit of money? You know, and I was thinking, oh, that's yeah, that, that's great. Of course. And I thought maybe we'll raise like $5,000, which at the time I was like, that is a lot of money. I was like, if we could raise $5,000 to donate right now, man, pat myself on the back and call it a day. Uh, it didn't happen that way. <laughs> Instead, I raised, I did raise $5,000 in about 20 minutes. And I, I looked at Molly and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then it just took <laughs> off. And two and a half days later, we raised 75 grand. Um, That's amazing. Why do you think, I guess, why, why do you think it like resonated with so many people? I think right now, uh, there's a world that black artists have to navigate that a lot of artists don't. Uh, we have to fight really hard to be taken seriously. And in a lot of cases, our blackness or our brownness is almost celebrated and like sort of super glued to our art and which ha I think can be good and bad, you know, um, it feels weird when people can buy stuff from a black artist and then they just say, I supported a black artist. And it's like, good on you, but maybe don't individualize us so much. Right. But at the same time, I think that's what was happening is people were looking for black creatives to support and black businesses, which is great. It's, it's, it's probably the best time in history to have a black business because people are seeing that we have to work almost twice as hard. And so people don't want that anymore. And so I think a lot of support came away from that. I think people wanted to do something. And plus, it's a t-shirt people fell in love with. Again, it was one of those things that I designed it for fun and people loved it. So it was this weird mixture of people love the design. They get a t-shirt. It only costs them 25 bucks. And they know that, you know, a big chunk of the profits is going to go towards various good causes. So it was just this recipe for, I think, success that... It took off. I didn't see it coming. And now that I see the potential, I'm start, I'm trying to brainstorm. How could we do this regularly? How could we use t-shirts and art regularly to do good where people, if they're going to buy clothes, buy them from artists. If they're going to buy things they like, buy them from artists and from artists that also are very conscious of the world around them and are at least trying to make an effort to um, give back. Yeah, it definitely does seem to to be have been this sort of perfect combination of things. Um, you know, the message itself is spot on. I, I think it has a lot of the same spirit and energy of, uh, you know, John Lewis's famous "Good Trouble" quote. I, I think you know it, it sort of has that same sort of spirit to it, which I, I think a lot of people have have grasped onto. But then also, like you said, the causes were amazing. You know, some of that money went to the bail project. Some of it went to Science Kids for Black Kids in Tulsa, which is incredible. Um, I mean, that's some really good work. And I think that's probably a lot of why people really kind of, you know, clung to it as much as they did. Um, have you had a chance to, to, I guess, 
get any feedback from the families that got some of those kits? Like, have you heard back? Yeah. Um, immediately. I mean, the, one of the first, uh, parents to come pick up kits, they were teaching uh, about 30 kids that couldn't go to school. And so they did them outside. They like rented this big covered patio and, and did the experiments outside, like 30 kids. Um, and she sent me photos of all of them and like, just getting a collage of photos of kids grinning and smiling and they're responding to this kit the same way I respond to the natural world and science. I recognized that look because I have that same energy about a lot of things. And it, you know, I, I got those and I, I cried the first time I got some images back of kids with the kits. And I thought maybe I'm doing something good here. Um, and then, you know, a, a lot of parents were sending me messages saying the kids loved it. One kid in particular uh, did the science experiment and he kept it in the jar and he put it on his shelf. Oh, and wow. he wrote me a letter in the mail that said, I love it so much. It's on my shelf and I look at it every day. Um, oh, that's amazing. You're making like in the next generation of like mad scientist Tyler Thrashers. Is what <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's a tiny thing. That kit cost me maybe eight to $10 to make. And it's a tiny little thing, but I get it. And for a lot of these kids, I would have loved to have had, you know, someone send me a weird mystery, mad science box and kids can take something that's like a two hour experiment and they will hold on to that. And that fascination from that one little tiny afternoon, you know, playtime that, goes on for years. I mean, I think about tiny things I did that maybe I spent 10 minutes of my childhood doing and something about it sparked a, a catalyst and domino effect of things I would do and love for years to come. So yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I think like, all the kids so far have loved them. <laughs> <laughs> and and you, you mentioned that you wanted to keep this going and you're planning to do even more from what I understand. Isn't there another shirt on the way? Propagate goodness. Yes. So uh, August 15th, we will be doing the pre-order for a shirt um, called uh, says propagate goodness. And it was a phrase that I had said a couple of times. And it's one of those phrases I said, and I was like, that should go on a shirt. Uh, I have a list of things. I'm like, that should go on a shirt. <laughs> um, and so that, yes, we're going to do that one. And the focus from that uh, for the donations is we're going to donate a big chunk to like food, insecurity and helping with food security causes and helping with, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people are about to face evictions, especially in Tulsa, where one in eight people are going to be evicted um, within any given year uh, currently. And we're trying to think, how can we help with rent relief or do our one tiny part to maybe help a few people? And and then we're going to make, instead of science kits, we're going to make plant propagation kits for kids. Oh, nice. So keeping that trend going of not only giving large amounts of money to different causes and foundations, but how can we take some of that money and convert it into a fun experience for kids and adults, not just giving money to foundations, but how can we turn that money into something else and use it creatively? Well, and I love that you're keeping that um, that aspect of the giving, you know, where at least some portion of it is going towards um, providing opportunities to kids that don't often have those opportunities. Right. And and I think that's sort of 
going towards this idea of undoing some of the systemic racism that our country's experienced, right? Giving kids an opportunity that they not necessarily would have had otherwise. And I really like that and appreciate that about, you know, what you're doing. And I'm glad that you're continuing to do that as, as far as, you know, the efforts going forward. Um, so let's talk a bit about what you have coming up. Um, did I read that you're like working on a novel? Is that a thing? Did I, <laughs> yes. is that yeah. actually a thing? Oh, yeah. Um, so I have so many projects that I just do when I can. But one of them is a novel that started off as in Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, you can get a book on monsters and traps and dungeons. There is not a book in Dungeons and Dragons on plants. There's not a book on plants that dungeon masters can work into their world. And I thought I should obviously make this book. So it started off as a... I had this book I wanted to design from a Dungeons and Dragons botanist who explores the world and has made a journal of some of the craziest plants in this realm. And then what ended up happening is as I was drawing the plants, I started to ask myself questions about the botanists themselves. And I started thinking, well, who is this botanist? I can't just talk about the plants. I got to talk about the person who's writing about these plants and I started to fall in love with this botanist the more I started to write them out. And what became what turned what was a manual on fictional plants turned into a personal journal from a botanist in a fictional world wow. trying to explore and study plants um, in this world. And so the novel pretty much is about this botanist that she comes across a trove of old alchemical illustrations of plants that are commonly known, but this alchemist would talk about these plants with properties that most botanists wouldn't acknowledge. And so she set out on a personal journey. She's really young, like 20, mid-20s. Uh, she sets out with this sort of like dangerous energy, like adventure, goes into the world, makes a lot of mistakes and learns from them. But she goes out looking for these plants in these old alchemy manuscripts. And she learns things about them that most botanists are ignoring because of this weird prestige that exists in the academia uh, of botany. And she brings a whole new viewpoint that a lot of old botanists do not agree with. And it turns into sort of a uh, sort of diplomatic sort of rivalry between this young, energetic, excited botanist and these old calcified botanists in this guild <laughs> that you know, think this is how it's been done, but here she is bringing a whole fresh new scientific perspective. And so that's the novel so far. Yeah. How far along are you with it? I think I'm about 60% done. Uh, it's one of those stories where I have the ending. I know exactly how it's going to wrap up. I know I have the climax. I have everything. It's just the, the world building. How do you build a world? You know, it's a story about one person and I'm just learning how to write right now you know it's a story about one person but how do you write about her in this world and make the world rich enough that people go into the book and they experience the world alongside her so that's where i'm at right now is how do i add in enough details to build a world that my readers can hear her story but also feel like there's a world beyond her story that i just reference every now and then well, and this seems like another of many of the things that we talked about, uh, you know, so far that you just kind of combine two completely different interests and merge them together. I mean, it seems to be like another case of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what about um, any art related things coming up that you, you'd want to talk about? So another fun thing is uh, 
I'm working on a, uh, a couple of things. I'm working on a new board game that oh, I'm designing. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and I'm writing this 80s synth wave soundtrack that goes <laughs> oh. with it. Um, and so it's a soundtrack you play with the board game where different things happen in the game based on the track that's playing. Wow, uh, that's amazing. So, yeah, there's a lot of fun. And that's something I'm working on. And um, another thing, you can't play test a board game you're designing during a pandemic. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. You got to have everybody in the same room. Yeah, and touching all the same stuff. And it's like, so a lot of my projects involve the opinions of other people being around me and and interacting with the art. So that's just, that's one of those things that's probably going to be put on hold till 2021. But some of my followers and some of you may have noticed some tiny things on my feed from different videos I post. Um, and I am currently in the process of designing one of the most elaborate, in-depth, alchemy-based scavenger hunts in probably, hopefully, history. Uh, and I've, I've dropped some hints, and if you do some digging and do some looking, you'll see some things that are in the works. Um, but that's a big art project I'm working on, is um, designing one of the most bonkers scavenger hunts that's <laughs> based in alchemy and science. I love the sound of that. When are, when is, uh, I guess, when are people going to find out more? Well, so I've been leaking a few things every now and then, and I've had a few people who've noticed and they're taking very extensive notes and they're even like sending them to me. Um, and it's so funny. I, I've, I've planted enough seeds. I imagine ha- I'm having people look in areas where I have not hid stuff and they're like, Tyler, what does this mean? And I'm like, oh, that's not, that's something complete. That's just a thing. That's not, I got people like, wondering what this is all about um and i'll tell you if you want a good start on this um go back to some of my first videos i had a video series where i'd skateboard into the lab screaming positivity um (laughs) and there's things hidden in those videos just to give enough people those seeds to start and um i'm just i'm releasing the info as slow and as as I'm just teasing it out as much as I can. And then once all the tools are there, it's up to my followers to deduce what is happening. I love this. I love this so much. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, where can people find you online? Uh, You can find me on Instagram under Tyler Thrasher Art. That is where I'm most active. I also have a Facebook page. I have my own issues with Facebook. I I don't really do Facebook a whole lot. Um, (laughs) But you can find me on Instagram or my website, tylerthrasher.com and that's where you'll find my website's where you'll find everything from my podcast projects to um, blogs and rants and ravings and everything I do is housed right there at tylerthrasher.com awesome perfect so last question and this is something that I like to ask everybody who is one artist that you'd like to see me have on the show oh my gosh oh man what a question (laughs) oh man Probably the hardest one I ask people. <laughs> yeah, damn. <laughs> There's so many artists I love. Um, you know who I would like? A good friend of mine in Kansas City. Her name's uh, Alessandra. And she owns Oracle. It's a curiosity shop in Kansas City. She's uh, also an artist and a taxidermist. And she articulated this giant python skeleton behind me. Um, oh, wow. She is a master and she is also one of those people that does a lot of different things really, really well. Um, and she runs a very killer business and 
is just honestly also a very swell human being. Uh, I would love to see Alessandra get some love. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Very cool. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> So that's it for this episode of Art Affairs. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tyler. Man, I find him to be such an inspiring guy. I mean, for one, he he really has this palpable positive energy. I mean, you could obviously hear it on the show when just when he talks, but like the way that he and his wife came out of the house fire that they had, and rather than letting that defeat them and crush their spirits like it might have done to somebody else, they both looked at the positive side of it. At least they were still alive and, and still had each other and hadn't yet had their baby yet, right? And then using that experience as a sort of totem for their own strength and you know, something that they can look at to represent the, the strength of their relationship was, was pretty amazing. And also, Tyler just has this obvious love for the natural world and an innate curiosity that's just contagious. It's like he observes the way things are and then seems to ask the question, what if I nudge that a bit here (laughs) and prod that a bit there? Let's see what happens, you know? And that seems like something that's always been a part of him. And I, I love how he said he saw the same expressions of curiosity and excitement in the faces of the kids he's been able to send science kits to in Tulsa. You know, thanks to the enthusiasm and support of his do-good gang. I really like what he had to say about always wanting to do good with what he has. And these fundraisers seem to be a wonderful solution for bringing about some real good with his community. And in a way that's true to who he is. Really good stuff. So thanks again to Tyler for joining me today. And thank you for checking out the show. I'm truly grateful for your support. If you happen to have Apple Podcasts, rating and reviewing the show there is a great way to help out. And as always, you can contact me through my website at artaffairspodcast.com or on Instagram at artaffairspodcast. So until next time, be good to yourself and be good to each other. (laughs) 